are listening to True Crime Fiction, feeding your addiction to the best of the written and the spoken word in crime. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so for as little as £1 at patreon.com slash truecrimefiction. A warning to all, this review contains some spoilers. I'll give another warning just before they come up, but if you really don't want to know what happens in Dust Off the Bones by Paul Howarth, then please don't listen. If film is an art form, then westerns, in my opinion, are its peak. However, I've never felt they are captured quite so well on the page. There is something about the central conceit of land being greater than man and man at the mercy of the environment, which feels as though it can be captured best by seeing and feeling it to know it rather than reading. The Western novel, however, still has something to tell us, even if most of our memories of the genre are from unreconstructive movies based on tired thinking which has not stood the test of either time or compassion. It no longer feels modern to update a genre by superficially putting a woman in what we used to assume is a man's role. Howarth does try to go further in Dust Off the Bones, released in August. This Australian Western tries to dig through the past and perceive it through new eyes, creating a more up-to-date Western. It is the privilege of those who have not lived through a history to be able to see it through different eyes, even if we are often still cataract by our own unconscious biases. The inciting incident of Dust Off the Bones is a massacre by the native police. While the characters are made up, the native police really did exist, and they really were responsible for what could, without exaggeration, be called the attempted genocide of the Aboriginal people of Australia. No single member of the native police was ever found guilty of these heinous crimes, despite widespread knowledge of them and some attempts at inquests. Dust Off the Bones follows Billy and Tommy McBride, two men who witnessed a massacre when they were teenagers, which was started by the native police in retaliation for the killing of their parents, apparently by an Aboriginal person. Alongside the brothers, there are a host of characters. The psychopathic Noon, who is a bet noir for literally 80% of the people whose path he crosses, and the other 20%, well, he'll probably kill them. He appears to have joined the native police merely as a means to channel his own bloodlust, while also hiding behind a uniform, which means he can demand respect and a certain amount of fealty from the white folks he protects. Noon is the embodiment of all that was worst about Australia at that time, which opens the questions about what Tommy and Billy embody. It's certainly not the belief in the fight for justice, that personification belongs to Henry Wells, the naive lawyer. Sure, he is going to change the world and be fated for it. Billy and Tommy, in a sense, embody the ordinary, the average, the path most taken. Realistic enough to know that the great man theory is a fallacy, but too full of fear and shame and too bound by part patriarchal conditioning to be able to move forward in a healthy way. Spoilers ahead. Indeed, the brothers, through various and different means, try to hide from and ignore their grief and trauma, 
but you can never run away from something which you are. You have to stand and face it, which is exactly what Tommy ends up doing, but only after his hand has been completely forced by circumstances out of his control. It is only when he has no other choice that he faces up to noon, in the way we all eventually have to turn and face our own demons, but even the idea of justice is not really in play here. Noon's death at the hands of Tommy is a very American sort of justice found at the end of a gun, the kind where death is meant to be what was deserved. As someone who does not believe in an afterlife with punishment additions and also would not strictly adhere to conventional ideas of reincarnation, death to me has always appeared to be a release from suffering. So the obsession with death as a punishment, the ultimate punishment, has always puzzled me. Surely if punishment is really what you want, then creating a worse life on earth is what is called for. And as we can see throughout history, we are really, really good at doing that. Noon dies, but there is no justice. Just another cover-up, another avoidance of the truth of what really happened to wipe out a whole tribe of Aboriginal Australians. There is, however, more ripe and fertile ground to be unearthed around this history, and I hope it is a place where many authors will start to till the soil. There are questions around British complicity in the genocide. The state, after all, sent its criminals to Australia for the slightest of offences in an attempt to assuage its uncomfortable existence cheek by jowl with a working class it was feared would copy the French Revolution any day. There is the complicity of the state, church, charities and social workers in a policy that aimed to breed out the Aboriginal peoples and assimilate them with white society – starting with the kidnap of children. There are the Aboriginal peoples of today, who, like many Indigenous peoples who Empire fatefully crashed into, are still dealing with the trauma and extreme inequality we lit the touch paper of. There is so much here to unpack, to explore. It's more than one book can do, and it is not going to be an easy or a pleasant job. Howith, however, is calling us to it, because once you have finished reading this book, you will understand its title is not just a useful marker for the story on your bookshelf, but instead an instruction, or maybe a request. Howith is asking Australia to start looking at itself, to start dusting off the bones. Thunder Bay is one of a small but important group of true crime podcasts which use the medium of true crime to highlight wider societal or political issues. It is true that while the idea of a person being wicked or evil gives us an easy simplicity with which to view the world, crime never happens in a vacuum, but is always layered in individual psychology, community, society and institutional structures. This makes the why of crime complex, but it is a complexity that we need to explore if crime prevention and violence reduction are aims we're serious about.
Thunder Bay is a city in Ontario, Canada, which started out as a fur trading post and now has a population of roughly 100,000. If you hold the image that many international listeners will do of Canada being a friendly, cosy place, kind of like a super chill version of America, then Thunder Bay will put that image to rest. Journalist Ryan McGovern takes us through the deaths of Indigenous children in Thunder Bay, many of whom are turning up drowned in local rivers over a period of decades. For the true crime enthusiast, the immediate response to this might be to question the possibility of a serial killer. The answer to that is both yes and no. Not in the way that we imagine serial killers as single individuals, but the killer here is not just the people who push the youngsters in, some of whom openly confess and still are not jailed, but an apathetic police force, rampant unrestrained racism, appalling neglect of children's rights and a lack of infrastructure for Indigenous people that is mind-boggling in an advanced Western country. This isn't new either. It's pretty much been going on since the foundation of modern Canada by fellow Scot John MacDonald, who put in place the Indian Act and policies which attempt to assimilate Indigenous children in brutal ways. The recent uncovery of 215 bodies of children, some as young as three, at an Indigenous residential school and the white fragility of Justin Trudeau, once the poster boy of the left, in response to an Indigenous teenager asking about suicide plans, which is covered in the podcast, all points to a country that has essentially assisted in genocide and is still to come to terms and make amends for its behaviour. It is always easy to point to other countries' racism and tut and shake your head. But Thunder Bay has also had me questioning my responsibility in this. Scotland has deep roots in Canada, and many Scots who travelled there had been turfed out of their own homes in the Highland and Lowland clearances, which some people here do consider a genocide as well. So it appears as though we may have crossed the sea to escape an oppression which we then recreated and subjected others to. It isn't all historic either. Only two generations back, I had relatives emigrating to Canada. Given how anti-Indigenous racism is baked into the modern state's history, it is more than likely that at least one of my ancestors will have been responsible for racist words, attitudes or acts that have compounded that issue. Does that make it my problem? I am not responsible for the actions of others, but what I can be responsible for is trying to help right those wrongs. Therefore, I'm urging my listeners to take some time to learn about colonialism and the part your own country did or did not play in it, and then act accordingly. Personally, I've set up a donation to Bear Clan, which is an Indigenous activist organisation that patrols the streets of Winnipeg to create a safer environment for Indigenous people. And if you have ancestral links to Canada, you might want to check them out too. I think Thunder Bay is a testament to Ryan McCann's persistent yet somehow still gentle focus on this issue and for pulling back from the true crime trope of focus on individuals and looking at the bigger picture of how crime intersects with literally everything else. 
As humans, we are messy and complex and unpredictable, and our desire to want crime wrapped up neatly and quickly is probably a reflection of the fact that crime gives us a sense of a lack of control, which is why so often the knee-jerk reaction can sometimes be something along the lines of how the victim did something to deserve it. Because to really look at how drug addiction, misogyny, racism, colonialism, even things as simple as a lack of infrastructure like bridges and roads all feed into crime, we run the risk of feeling overwhelmed by our lack of power and the random nature of existence. Yes, it is scary. But Thunder Bay is just one of the places where what other people deserve from us is not the transference of our own fears onto others, but our own toleration of the uncomfortable realities of humanness. Anna is a tenacious cop juggling career with single motherhood. So far, so troopy. However, what makes Hannah different from the thousands of other police people who are only alive on the page is that Hannah is Maori. Given the Maori people are overrepresented in the New Zealand prison system due to the structural injustices of colonialism, Hannah's decision to join the police was not easy, and one she has paid for with estrangement from the people she grew up with. Hannah, however, finds solace in her daughter Addison, who is creative and loving, is fiercely proud of the culture and history she has inherited, even though it is one that most recently is extremely painful. After Hannah discovers a man hanging hidden behind an empty apartment wall, she is on the trail of a serial killer. It becomes clear through her work that the killer she is tracking is not only Maori, but is killing in an attempt to right the wrongs done to his ancestors. Many will have deep sympathy with the plight of indigenous cultures which have been decimated by colonialism, but we also need to acknowledge that sympathy and its twin pity are not what anyone is actually asking for. It is these kind of tensions between big ideas of ownership, justice, retribution, which lie at the heart of Better the Blood which are played out in the chase between Hannah and the killer, and also between Hannah and her daughter Addison, who struggles to accept the role her mother, as a police officer, has played in the suppression of her own people. The surface question of this book is, who is killing these people? But as a book of layers, readers who choose to dig down further find other questions, many of which will be uncomfortable. Like its Antipodean counterpart, Dust Off the Bones, we are seeing an emergence in crime fiction of narrative that deeply engages with crime. Not just the crime that propels a reader to turn the page to find out who'd done it, rather crime that is rooted in great injustices, crimes of nations and states. Crimes for which no one person can be jailed, so we can easily say justice is done and move on. Crimes which are so large that they ripple throughout history and on the level of time are still present, happening and ongoing before our very eyes.
from more crime fiction and true crime, which deals with the consequences of colonialism, check out our episodes on Dust Off the Bones and Thunder Bay. You have been listening to True Crime Fiction, the podcast that is feeding your addiction to all things crime. You can find our website at true-crime-fiction.com, on Twitter at true underscore crime underscore fic, on Facebook and Instagram as True Crime Fiction. Please rate and review on the podcast app of your choice. Music is by Kitty Kitty Meow Meow.